electronic devices, your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Turn to Romans 6, 15 through 23. Uh, I'm having to read several books in this program that I'm, I'm going on in some further education. One of them is a book uh, by Patrick Lencioni, which is a national bestseller right now, and it's called The Advantage. Why organization, organizational, I had, almost had an English accent. What is up with that? Why organizational health trumps everything else in business. Now, he comes with years of experience uh, working with thousands of senior executives from Fortune 500 companies down to mid-sized companies, from nonprofits to startups. He says organizational health is everything. It changes everything in churches and businesses and families. So what's organizational health, right? Well, he illustrates what it is from an episode of I Love Lucy. I know many of you know what I Love Lucy. Who does not know I Love Lucy? Okay, so cable really does work. Fantastic. The next generation's getting it. All right, so Ricky, Lucy's husband, comes home from work one day and finds his wife crawling around on her hands and knees. Uh, and he asks, what are you doing, right? And she says, oh, I'm looking for my earrings. And he says, you lost your earrings in the living room? She said, no, I lost them in the bedroom, but the light is much better out here. Okay, I'll let you get, everybody got it? All right, good. Lencioni says, there it is. Most leaders prefer to look, prefer to look for answers where the light is better, where they are more comfortable And the light is certainly better in the measurable, the objective, the data-driven world of organizational intelligence, meaning stuff like strategy, marketing, finance, and technology, what he calls decision sciences. The light's much better there. It's more comfortable for us to live in that world than it is in the messier, more unpredictable world of organizational health. When it comes to life change, we prefer to look for answers where the light is better where it's more comfortable for us in the measurable, controllable, predictable world of laws and rules and biblical principles and good advice. During our first 10 years of marriage, it became a joke between Nancy and me. She would come to me and tell me about how she's feeling, some sort of stressor, more like plural stressors, Uh, not being able to get this done, not being able to get that done, Uh, A difficult, hard relationship, issues with the kids, life being out of control, um, not being able to exercise, whatever, all right? But here's what would happen. Most of the time, it had to do with not having enough time to get everything done. And I would be thinking, well, why don't you have enough time? You only have four kids spaced two years apart. You're only trying to homeschool them and take care of them. You're only trying to take care of the house, the dog, and me. Um, and you're married to a church planner. What's the big deal? I mean, planning a church in a new city that people told you it could never happen and a church would never make it here, a reformed church would never make it here. So life for her looked like many times doing things and going without her husband in a lot of different things because I'd be gone on Saturdays and be gone on Sundays and be gone during the week. And So I don't know why she had such a big deal. And, and, and to be a church planner's wife, you have to be incredibly flexible, which means you have to have, you have to think of your house as a revolving door for people to come in and out like it's their house. Right? So leadership meetings, community groups, socials, meeting new people, trying to engage people in, in the community, uh, urgent pastoral care appointments, because there's no buildings, there's no 
I didn't drink coffee then. Gosh, I have changed. I drink coffee now. So during the first 10 years, it was not unusual for us to have people eating at our house two nights a week. So again, I would think, like, what's the big deal? So to all of this, I would say, in all my wisdom and all my care and all my relational skill, you know what you need to do, honey? You need to make a schedule. Yep, that's what I said. So she would come to me and say, honey, I'm losing my mind. And I'd say, okay, okay, let's make a schedule. When it comes to life change, we think we can schedule it. When it comes to life change, we prefer things to be in the light where we're comfortable, where we can manage it and we can predict it and we can control it. But Romans 6 says life change is just not like that. Life change can't be scheduled. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Uh, Today's reading is Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit uh, you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks, brother. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Make, make the realities here clear to our mind and real to our heart. Oh, Lord, may your grace and your power and your strength run downhill to weak people like us, needy people like us, broken people like us. And we ask this in your name, amen. All right, Romans 6 is divided nicely into two questions. So if you really want to get a handle of Romans 6, you just got two questions. One in verse 1, one in verse 15. Verse 1 we saw two weeks ago, and last week was a continuation of it. What, it was this. What does life change look like in a world under grace or good news? I mean, why be good or do good when it's, a, it's all about grace? The answer is given in verses 1 through 14. The answer was the death and resurrection of Jesus for the Christian changed the Christian forever. It's an epic life change. When Jesus died and when he rose again and you became a Christian and I became a Christian, you epically changed because you participated in Jesus' death. You participated in his resurrection. You and I are not the same people we once were. You have epically changed changed 
You died to sin. You rose to newness of life, period. You and I have changed beyond our wildest dreams and we haven't done anything yet. There are two bold implications for life change here. You can now struggle with your sin. You are free to enter into a struggle with your sin. You are free now to live the normal Christian life which is struggling with your sin. The mark of the Christian life is struggle with sin, not living above your sin. If you've been wrapped up in a, in a theology or a scheme of the Christian life that's encouraged you to live victoriously above your sin, above a struggle with sin, I'm here to tell you what you already know that's neurotic. And it's incredibly destructive and dangerous. I mentioned that everyone's favorite theologian, J.I. Packer, lived under those theologies for most of his high school, college, and into his graduate studies years. And he said, quote, I nearly lost my mind. And it was John Owen who talked about what Jesus had done that brought him into, for the first time, a struggle with sin, that that's the normal Christian life, that he was set free. Sam Albury is a pastor of St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead, England. He wrote a book called, Is God Anti-Gay? And other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. In an interview in Modern Reformation magazine, which we have out here, and a guy named Michael Horton who's in the interview, a theologian that I absolutely love, and he's a friend of mine. uh, Albury says, for as long as I've had sexual feelings, they've been same-sex feelings. That became apparent to me as a teenager going through puberty. It took me a while to put the pieces together and recognize what was going on, but that has been and continues to be my experience. And Horton, who's interviewing him and is a good friend of his as well, said, okay, you must meet people who are a little uneasy with the suggestion that Christians can continue to struggle with same-sex attraction. We all have our sins that we struggle with, but for whatever reason, this is the one that should go away. At least that's what we want you to tell the youth group. How do you respond to people who really wish you weren't going to continue to struggle with same-sex attraction? You know how he responds? Right out of Romans 6 through 8. He says, we have to take our expectation of what the Christian life will be like from the New Testament. The presence of the battle is actually the assurance that the Spirit is at work within me. The person who says you shouldn't be fighting sin if you're a Christian makes me wonder if they're actually fighting sin. Or that they just run up the white flag and let sin take over. For me, the evidence that the Spirit is at work is not that there's no battle, but that there's a mighty battle. Because new affections, I'm still quoting from him, because new affections are now at war with my old ones for the first time. That's the Christian life. Second implication, remember who you are. So first is, you're free now to struggle with sin. Romans 6 is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, friends, 
We are now free to struggle with sin. You are free to roll up your sleeves and get after it. You are free now to hate your sin. You are free now to grab it by the throat and get in a death lock with it and last man standing kind of thing. You're free to do that. That's an incredible freedom. And Jesus' death and resurrection gives you that freedom. Second implication, remember who you are, be who you are. Christianity is the only religion, the only belief system, the only worldview, the only pursuit of ultimate reality, the only way to build a life that says this. It calls you to be who you already are. That's called grace salvation. Because of what Jesus has done, you are already someone. And Christianity says, now be who you are. Every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other pursuit of ultimate truth says, calls you to become something you're not. That's called a work salvation. You work to become something you're already not. See the difference? Okay, now look at verse 15. Verse 15 focuses on, if verse 1 focused on life change in light of a grace salvation, this one focuses on life change, what life change would look like in a world without the law, without good advice, without scheduling life change. In other words, why be good and do good if you don't have to? Why be good and do good if there's no incentive for you and me, no reward for you and me, no carrot dangling of blessing to be good and do good? Or there's no fear or threat of losing something or some punishment or some embarrassment. If you don't have the the fear of loss and the attraction of blessing, why in the world do any of us want to be good or do good? The answer is found in verses 15 through 23. So let's take a look at it, shall we? Why be good and do good? The Apostle Paul's answer is pretty stunning. You ready? His first answer is this. Because scheduling life change is over. You can't schedule life change. It never works. It never did work. And it never will work, no matter how intense your effort. Verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? We are not under law now, Christian. You don't live a life now trying to become something you're not. You don't live a life trying to generate your own happiness. You don't live a life trying to earn love and to become lovely. You don't earn a life to try to obtain beauty. You don't You don't live a life of trying to generate freedom and health and flourishing. Those days are over. Scheduling life change is over because now you're under grace. So we could answer the question this way. Why be good? Why do good? Paul's answer is because you already are good. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you once, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. 
you hear me say this over and over again because I, I am a kind of a grammar geek. <clears throat> God is in the grammar. You literists, you English folks, you know that. Grammar can be beautiful. God is in the grammar. I want you to find that word, have become obedient. You can underline it in your Bible or highlight it in your, your, te- your uh, electronic device. It's called, in the original language, what that says, that verb tense is called an aorist. Big deal. Here's what it means. It's a completed action in the past. So this is uh, an obedience that's already done. An obedience that's finished. It's over. It's a finished obedience. So in other words, this is an epic obedience. It's an epic be good. It's an epic do good that's already been done. It's already finished. And every Christian has already done it the moment they believe. And notice it's an epic obedience from the heart. You could translate from the heart as wholeheartedly. So this is an obedience that actually gets down into the the deepest center of who you are and where all the issues of life come from, says Proverbs. That from your heart, this obedience is real. Heartfelt. That it's transformative. That it's become a want to. It's become a desire. It's become a love, right? It's real change. So this is what the point is. It's very possible for us to embrace Christianity intellectually and not embrace Christianity from the heart at the same time. It's impossible. I mean, it's possible for you and I to embrace Christianity for power in my life. To have power over my life, to have power over other people, to have power over God, and not embrace Christianity from the heart. It's possible for you and I to embrace ministry and reading our Bibles and praying and doing lots of great things and not do it from the heart. It's possible to embrace Christianity, to become a morally good person and to do good things and not embrace Christianity from the heart at the same time. From the heart is a whole new ball game. From the heart is the center of all reality for you and me. No matter what our intellectual beliefs are, no matter what our behavior and our ethics are, no matter what we give verbal homage to, the heart is where you're most real. Epic obedience is from the heart, and what's stunning about this, this passage is saying, it's it's a completed action you've already engaged in. And it's obedience to something very specific. Do you see what the obedience from the heart is to? It's to something. Do you see it? To what? You can say it. What? It's the standard of teaching. What's the standard of teaching? According to Paul, the standard of teaching is the gospel and all its implications. So he's saying, listen, you've already become obedient from the heart to the gospel. He's saying, why be good and do good? Why pursue life change in a world where good advice no longer exists? In a world that's no longer under law, a world that's no longer under scheduling. Why? Because the gospel hits your heart. 
because the gospel reaches your heart. Because the gospel has the power and the light to change you from the inside out alone. Scheduling can't do it. The law can't do it. Rules and biblical principles can't do it. Only the gospel can. So hear this. And hear it almost like you're trying to hear it for the first time. Good news changes us, not good advice. Jesus' work changes us, not your work. Jesus' performance changes us, not your performance. Jesus' received righteousness changes us, not all our efforts to achieve one. Jesus' death changes us, not some self-atoning scheme that we come up to like, if I feel bad enough for three days, I'll be okay. Jesus' death delivers us, not some scheme of self-deliverance. Jesus' resurrection changes us, not some self-healing power we think we have to do something. Grace changes everything. We are under grace. Um, Doug Wilson, who I'm not a real fan of. I mean, I, this one is taped. At the first service, it wasn't taped, but this is taped. Um, he has been a part of many things I am absolutely against. He has been a part of changing, moralistic changing in areas of education, in areas of parenting, in areas of marriage. He is on the forefront of major movements of change in Christianity. Listen to what he says about grace. He says, grace is wild. Grace unsettles everything. Grace overflows the bank. Grace messes up your hair. Grace is not tame. In fact, unless we are making the devout nervous, we are not preaching grace as we ought. That's beautiful. Notice the result of the gospel hitting the heart and epic obedience in verse 18. Do you see that? The result is we have become a slave to righteousness. Do you see this? The moment that we believe, and we, the moment the gospel, the standard of teaching, is unleashed with power in our life, that it carries divine life and divine power in it. So when it's heard, when it's thought out, when it's felt, it, it, it's releasing that power into you when you hear it. And it impacts you in such a way that you now and I now obey from the heart and actually grasp it. It becomes clear to our minds, it becomes real to our heart, and we trust Jesus and his salvation. Notice what the result of that is. You now become a slave to righteousness. You now become a slave to freedom. Forever. God is in the grammar that had become, that's a divine passive, and it's also an aorist, which means it's something that God does to you. He makes you a slave of freedom forever. You don't do it. You are now locked in to becoming a slave to freedom for the rest of your life. And God did that. So, becoming obedient from the heart leads to more. It leads to becoming a permanent slave to freedom. So your initial conversion through your continual growth is all something God has done and is doing. So, 
You are a permanent slave to life right now. You are a permanent slave to life-giving relationships. You are a permanent slave to being able to end gossip and slander in your life. You are a permanent slave to freedom so that you can start ending slavery areas in your life. You are a permanent slave to loving and serving and even denying yourself to other people. You are a permanent slave to forgetting yourself. You are a permanent slave to human flourishing and happiness and comfort and energy and being used by God. You are a permanent slave to these realities. Why be good and do good in a world that no longer exists under law, rules, good advice? Two answers. One, because scheduling life change is over. And because the gospel alone changes your life from first to last. You're no longer, if you want the, want the scripture, we are no longer under law. We are under grace. Grace changes everything. There's one bold application for this, and it's found in verse 16. Do you see it? Do you not know? You see that? Do you not know? Throughout chapter 6, Paul says, know, believe, consider multiple times because that is the application of the whole chapter. So we could say this. Here's the bold application. If we know the implications of what Jesus has done for us, and what I mean by know, if we know the implications of what Jesus has done for us, if you work it out, think it out, know it, tumble it around in your mind, get clarity about it, think it out. If you feel it deeply, and if you push it into all areas of your life, that's what, if you see that present yourselves and present your members in verse 16 and 19, that's what that's talking about. Presenting your members, it means presenting your life, all areas of your life, to a Jesus and his salvation. Reckoning, considering, thinking it out, feeling it deeply in this area and that area. We would say something like this. Build your messy life around the gospel. Build your messy career around the gospel. Build your messy marriage around the gospel. Build your messy communication around the gospel. Build your messy pain and suffering around the gospel. Build your relationships around the gospel. That's how we would say it. If, if we know the implications of what Jesus has done for us, we change. We grow. we actually experience what's said in verse 16 and 19. It's a big theological word, sanctification. So do you want to grow in the Christian life? Do you want to grow as a human being? Do you want to grow in those areas that are difficult? Know, consider, remember Jesus and his salvation in those areas. We could say it this way. Not knowing the implications of Jesus and his salvation is why we fall into patterns of sin. When you and I have an area that we fall into a repeated pattern with sin, the answer according to Paul is we no longer or don't understand the implications. We haven't known, we haven't remembered, we haven't considered, we haven't thought it out. The gospel and its implications in that area. And that's why we repeatedly enter into patterns of sin that this text says 
release painful breakdown into our lives and our relationships in that area that we're struggling in. Breakdown always follows sin, no matter what. For the Christian, for the non-Christian, within sin, if you cut sin open, it carries death inside it. So wherever sin goes, death goes. Wherever sin goes, breakdown goes. Wherever sin goes, decreation goes. Wherever sin goes, you fall to pieces. Psychologically, personally, relationally, in your career. That's, that's what happens. And Paul is saying, it's described in verse 19 as lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. This ever downward spiral. You're spiraling down. Have you ever noticed that when you sin, it's easier to sin that same sin the next time? It's easier. That's the downward cycle of pattern of sin. Sin only leads to more breakdown. In verse 21, it's called things of which you are not ashamed. You are now ashamed. 23, the wages of sin is death. One commentator puts it this way. Sin is a master who always pays on time and in full. Sin pays out what we deserve for our work for him. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity puts it this way. Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. Okay. And this must either be true or false. Okay. So logical, C.S. Lewis. Now, there are many good things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live for 70 years. So if you're only going to live for 70 years, there's many things in your life that you're not going to bother about. You're not going to worry about. Okay, good. But I had better bother about it very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for what it will be. We fall into repeated patterns of sin according to Paul because we have not known, we have not believed, we have not worked it out, we have not felt deeply Jesus and his salvation in that particular area. For example, how do we break repeated patterns of sin? Let's say we cycle into destructive communicative patterns, okay? Let's say we're in communicative patterns that are not very healthy. If, if, Galatia, if Paul was talking in Galatians, he would say, you're biting and devouring one another, okay? Here's what's happening according to Romans 6. We are seeking our justification. We are seeking our righteousness. We are seeking our sense of acceptance and being an okay approved person in that person's approval. Whatever person we're engaged in, this communicative reality, that person has become the source of my justification. That person has become the source of my righteousness. So now, my well-being is at stake every time we have a conversation. I am now fighting to prove and protect myself every time we get in a conversation. We are trapped in a cycle of justification by works. Who would have thought your communication is that deep? So we need to know, we need to remember, we need to believe, we need to think out, we need to feel deeply 
that you're already justified. You're already righteous. You're already acceptable. You're already approved. You're already completely loved. So now you're free to forget yourself. You're free to focus on the other person. You're free to not have to prove yourself and protect yourself. You're free to not have to indulge self-pity. You're free to overlook the jab. You're free to actually move towards the person relationally. You're free to forgive them and love them. You're free to believe the best, and when it's not the best, to bear them. You're free in a place of solid security to seek to understand them and to be understood and not take it personally. That changes communication, justification, the gospel being known, considered, remembered, pushed into your relationships and your communication changes everything. Another example, and this is how we're going to end because I'm hungry. We cycle into destructive patterns of addictions for many reasons, many reasons, right? So I'm not going to pretend to stand up here and say, here's why you struggle with a particular addiction. But I am going to stand up here based on the New Testament and based on the scriptures and say, this one is very foundational to whatever addiction you struggle with. All addictions have some root systems and have some foundational issues that the Bible says this is one of them if not the one. It's not going to give you uh, every answer because it doesn't do that. But it gives you a way of seeing reality about yourself and about how things work. And so here is. We cycle into destructive patterns of addictions for many reasons, but the bottom line is ultimately seeking our justification, seeking our righteousness, seeking our love and intimacy, seeking our beauty and our happiness in someone or something other than Jesus and his salvation. Because we have to have it. And anything other than Jesus and his salvation is a horrible master, even if it's a good thing. It's a horrible slavery, right? But what if you were to remember and push in in the midst of that addiction when you're convinced you're a slave? And you've got some body things going on, certainly. And you've got all kinds of other things going on, you bet. But what if you're to remember and you're to consider you died to sin? You're not a slave any longer. Be who you are. We could say it this way, too. The bottom line of ultimately destructive patterns of addictions we could be either pursuing something, trying to get happiness, life, justification, righteousness out of it, but we also can be like doing this, escaping the disappointment of the loss of our justification, the loss of our righteousness, the loss of our love and our intimacy, the loss of our beauty and our happiness in something or someone other than Jesus and his salvation. And then addiction becomes an escape the pain. Knowing and remembering and considering and feeling deeply that you already have what you're looking for 
and that you already died to sin's tyrannical power and you're already alive in a newness of life that you could never give yourself? Because of what Jesus has done, you know what that does in the moment, on the spot, in real time? It saps sin's strength. Before he was a Christian, Augustine. Now, Augustine is probably, arguably, the most influential Christian that ever lived outside of the Apostle Paul and the Apostles. I mean, even when you get to the Protestant Reformation, and we have all of our heroes there, Luther and Calvin, they all went back to Augustine to prove their case. Everyone wants to own Augustine as their home base. He is, arguably, the most influential Christian who ever lived, pastor, theologian. All right. Uh, before he was a Christian, he loved the company of beautiful women. Okay? One day, recently after his conversion, he's walking down the streets of Milan, and one of his lovers sees him and comes up to him passionately and grabs him and says, Augustine, it is I. It is I. Can you imagine? His pulse starts racing. His desires roar. And then strength surges into him as he says, yes, but it's not I. Remember who you are. Be who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this good news that is absolutely breathtaking and absolutely, I don't know, it's so far beyond us that we're still racked with anxiety and we're still racked with fear and we're still racked with guilt and we're still tossing and turning over trying to fix something, figure something out, change something, control something. Oh Lord, I pray for all of us that you would cause us to relax and rest and find comfort in Jesus and his salvation. It's finished. And out of that rest, come alive. And out of that rest, have tremendous energy. And out of that rest, become a permanent slave to freedom. We pray this in your name, amen. Okay, y'all, the Lord's Supper is for those who know Jesus, those that have a relationship with Jesus. So if you don't, we are so glad you're here and we welcome you and want to say very personally and very publicly we're glad you're here and we'd love to continue a conversation with you i mean pastors like to talk that's that kind of goes with it goes with the job description if you don't have the gift of gab it's like i don't know if you can go that route right so we love to talk but i would love to have a conversation with you about whatever barriers you might have that you're thinking through with christianity they could be intellectually they could be relationally you know, it could be because of some Christian messed you up, or it could be you just can't get your head around this idea of Christianity. Um, Slim and I and the leadership of this church want to tell you we welcome it, we love it, we're here for you. Um, those of you, the rest of us that do know Jesus, this is a time for us to get grace for the journey, strengthening grace. But notice it's not like this, it's not like boogie dust. All right, what happens up here? This is the spiritual presence of Jesus where he actually gives you 
his finished work. He makes it real to you. He makes it clear to your mind. He causes you to remember it and consider it and believe it and push it into your life. That's what's happening up here, okay? All right, let's look at the words of institution. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as 